Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories to tell. Today we explored the idea of curses, legends, and superstitions in sports, especially baseball. This fall, we have the odd situation of two teams that are under alleged curses facing off against each other in the World Series. Some are even calling it the Apocalypse World Series. It's the Chicago Cubs versus the Cleveland Indians, two teams suffering from long-time droughts, and many would say long-time curses. To examine this further, we've talked this week with two guys who are baseball fanatics. In Chicago, we ran down Brian Corbin, real-time correspondent at Wrigley Field for MLB.com. He's covered the Cubs in that capacity for the last four seasons. And in Cleveland, we talked to Matt Lowell. He recently moved from ball fields to factories as he writes about manufacturing technology for Industry Week, a business trade magazine in Cleveland. But the bulk of his reporting life has been rooted in sports and especially in baseball. His most memorable project remains a work called A Minor League Season, a five-month road trip with his wife Carolyn through 45 states and 120 minor league teams to write about the minor leagues and America. So let's hear more about the curses, legends, and superstitions surrounding this year's World Series. Let's head to Chicago and start off with Brian Corbin. Well, the curse dates back to 1945, and it's Game 4 of the World Series between the Cubs and the Detroit Tigers. It's at Wrigley Field, and Bill Cianis, he's a Greek immigrant, and he's an owner of the Billy Goat Tavern. He heads to Game 4 with the ticket for himself and his pet goat named Murphy. He brought the and goat. Murphy, yeah, brought the goat. The goat's name is Murphy. And when he goes to the park, he has Murphy uh, draped with a banner that reads, We Got Detroit's Goat. But when he's outside of the ballpark, uh, waiting in line to go in the gate, some of the spectators are complaining that Murphy stinks. So Bill and his goat were denied access to the park. And supposedly this is where Sianis throws his hands in the air and he lays a curse on the Cubs, not only proclaiming the Cubs would lose the 1945 World Series, 
which they did in seven games, but that the Cubs would never win a World Series again. And so since then, the Cubs have been mostly dreadful in the standings. They've had a handful of opportunities to reach the Fall Classic, but each time they've suffered through seemingly strange circumstances that have been attributed to this curse of the Billy Goats. Now, the time before that that the Cubs uh, won was in 1908, correct? Correct. 1908, but they were also in the World Series in 1907, which they won, and 1906, which they lost. So in 1906, they lost against the Chicago White Sox, and then 1907, they won the series against Detroit, 1908, they won the series again against Detroit. So they were in a run where I believe they were in like four World Series in something like 10 years. But the last one was 1908. So then they had this drought. They were in the World Series in 1945 and, and then the curse. Now, this curse, if, if I'm not mistaken, and, and you're the better historian than I am, Brian, on this, this curse has supposedly evidenced itself in, in many different ways from uh, a black cat to uh, fans in the stands, right? The Black Cat is the season of 1969, and the Cubs appear to be the cream of the crop in the National League, and they have a large lead. It's eight and a half games in September, and the Cubs are playing the Mets at Shea Stadium. Uh, Hall of Fame third baseman Ron Santo is in the on-deck circle uh, when a Black Cat runs out onto the field between uh, he and the Cubs dugout. Out of nowhere. Yeah, out of nowhere. <laughs> where where the cat came from, we don't know. But what happened to the Cubs was a collapse in September. Uh, they do not go on to the postseason. Uh, of course, they don't uh, reach the World Series. And then most notably is the season of 2003 with the infamous Steve Bartman game. That is game six of the NLCS against the Florida Marlins, uh, where a uh, foul ball goes down the left field line and uh, we've all seen this you can replay it in your head I'm sure where Bartman uh, is reaching up to grab the foul ball where the left fielder Moises Alou is at the wall and he thinks he can catch it Uh, the ball is dropped and uh, the Marlins rally and win game six and come back the next night at Wrigley Field and win game seven now in addition to the curses and their or the curse and its manifestations uh, people in Chicago have been working diligently to get rid of this curse right I mean the just that one incident with Bartman uh, didn't they blow up or electrocute the ball at Harry Carey's restaurant or something they did and in fact they somehow used a uh, <laughs> part of that spectacle to even create a pasta sauce, uh, which didn't work. (laughs) But there have been many efforts. They even date back to the 70s where um, Bill Sianis' nephew, Sam, brings a descendant of Murphy. And remember, Murphy was the goat. Right. So he brings another goat to Wrigley Field, and they let the goat walk around uh, the park and the ball field. And Sam says the hex has been lifted uh, for the Cubs. 
well, that didn't work. And then I remember in 2008, the Cubs had the best record in the National League, and before the playoffs, they brought in a Greek Orthodox priest to sprinkle holy water in the Cubs' dugout and, and bless it and whatnot. But that didn't work either. The Dodgers went on to sweep the Cubs in the NLDS that year. Uh, and with uh, each passing season, the legend of this curse grows and many different attempts have been made to lift it. Now we'll see if uh, it's finally lifted. Of course, the Cubs are in the World Series, yet to be determined if they'll win it this season. I know that uh, people are calling this the Apocalypse World Series. Uh, Cleveland's supposedly under a curse. Chicago's curse has been... Uh, well-known, uh, one of you going to come out from under this, right? That's for sure. One side has to win. But I have been thinking that if the Cubs were to go on and lose this World Series, it will be soul-crushing for some. But this team on uh, Saturday night, when they clinched the National League pennant, they had five players in the lineup that were 25 years old or younger. And so what I'm getting at is I don't think this is the end of seeing this Cubs team in the World Series. I think this team is going to have another shot at a World Series title in the next two to three years. Uh, the Indians, I'm not quite as sure. But the Cubs, I think they're going to be there. But you know, there's no denying that for one of these fan bases, it's, it's going to be a surreal experience to see their team win the World Series. Now, I know you do a lot of reporting for MLB.com, uh, sort of on the atmosphere of Wrigley Field and, and all the things that surround the Cubs at home. Uh, you've you've got to have fans that are just absolutely crazy about <laughs> all of this and with with the curse. What are the fans doing? Are they, are they believers yet? Are they on the fence, uh, how are they evidencing uh, their angst about this curse? Well, I think there are two things, Tom. One is the fans are believers this season. Even as early as spring training in February, anybody that follows baseball could look at the Cubs lineup and see what a strong team they were, how much depth they had. And when the season started, they began the year 8-1. and one. And they were basically on cruise control until uh, right before the All-Star break. The Cubs went on a 5-15 and 15 stretch, and they had had a large lead in the division, and I believe that dwindled to around six or seven games. And maybe there were some fans and some talk of, maybe this team isn't as good as we thought. But after the All-Star break, they started out hot. They never looked back. And through the postseason, you could just see how well this team plays. Uh, they, they have uh, their manager, Joe Madden, who's been masterful at taking uh, the expectations and the pressure off of these young kids, some of which are not even old enough to remember uh, the curse or the black cat or the Steve Bartman game. And they've just played their game. And when they do that, it's pretty clear they're the best team in the league. So I, I do believe that uh, the fans are believers. And secondly, the other thing the curse of the Billy Goat has done is it's taken the focus off of what for a long time was a dysfunctional organization. 
uh, from the front office, uh, even to something uh, such as the Cubs were one of the last teams to uh, integrate their roster. It wasn't until 1953 when they brought uh, Ernie Banks, uh, called him up to the Cubs. And in fact, as an interesting side note, in tonight's game, the center fielder Dexter Fowler will be the first African-American player for the Cubs to appear in the World Series. Wow. And probably throughout wow. the course of, yeah, throughout the course of the series, uh, you could see um, uh, fellow players, Jason Hayward, pitcher Carl Edwards Jr., and a young up-and-coming superstar at shortstop, Edison Russell, uh, will join Dexter in that category as well, which is uh, just something really cool about this series. Twenty six uh, Cubs win and lose. 2016, finally that happens. That's amazing. Finally that happened, yes. Yeah, 71 years after the last time they had been to a World Series. Amazing. So when they when they fell behind to, I believe it was the Giants, didn't you get some sense from fans that, uh-oh, here we go again? You did a little bit in Game 4 of the Division Series because the Cubs, or rather the Giants, throw left-hander Matt Moore, and he shuts down the Cubs roster for eight innings until um, the ninth when... Bruce Bochy, the manager for the Giants, decided to go to the bullpen, and the Cubs, uh, the Bats, woke up, and they rallied back and won that game in the, in the series. And they go on to play the Dodgers, and really I think the Yanks began when the Cubs fell behind in the championship series to Los Angeles two games to one, and that was because the Cubs were shut out in back-to-back games. Uh-oh. And this was a team that had the best run differential in the league this year. They were just absolute mashers from April through September. And I'm watching game three, and, and the Cubs get shut out again. And I was saying to myself, where is the team I watched at Wrigley Field all summer? You know, it, it, it was just like they were non-existent. But in game four, uh, the Cubs break out the bats, and they go on to mash and uh, win the rest of the the series uh, against the Dodgers and and advance to the World Series. But there really hasn't been much drama for the Cubs in this postseason, not even on Saturday night when they clinched the National League pennant and they're facing Clayton Kershaw, who would shut them out in the second game of uh, the championship series, one to nothing. Uh, The first batter got on, Dexter Fowler. Uh, The second batter got a hit to right field, Chris Bryant. The Cubs are on the board, one to nothing. And the Dodgers never threatened the rest of the night. Well, as you're watching all of this, it, and I know you've watched the Cubs for a number of years, you've been there at the ballpark for the last four, uh, you've got to see either fans with superstitions or players with superstitions. Can can you share any of those with us? I don't see as many superstitions really? from players that— I remember in uh, just being a baseball addict um, my whole life that I remember in the past, but there are still, uh, I guess, what I would call traditional superstitions of players not stepping on the white line. Some players uh, may eat the same meal before each game. Others will come out at the same time. 
before each game to warm up. Um, one in particular that has uh, become an interesting story is I had referenced to you about the Cubs not swinging the bats. They just went ice cold at the plate right. against the Dodgers. First baseman Anthony Rizzo. And he is in a terrible postseason slump at this point where I believe he had just had two hits. And he decided to borrow a bat from teammate Matt Caesar. And Rizzo went on to uh, get like five hits in his next ten at-bats. He hit a home run. Uh, He was driving in guys on base. And because Rizzo had done so well with teammate Matt Caesar's bat, uh, the shortstop Addison Russell, who had forgot his leggings in Chicago when they were in L.A., he went to Matt Caesar and borrowed his leggings, and <laughs> Russell went on to hit two home runs. So for this series, that right now is a story that will continue. In fact, tonight, when you're watching the game, you can look to see if Anthony Rizzo steps to the plate with Matt Caesar's bat. I'm sure it will be mentioned on the broadcast, but that's the one that jumps out to mind first for this World Series. Matt Caesar seems to be the catalyst, right? Yes, and interestingly enough, Matt Caesar, uh, who uh, was a role player for this Cubs team, came off the bench and uh, did very well in that role as a pinch hitter, but he was not on the active playoff roster uh, for the championship series. So actually, uh, even though he made the trip and had his equipment with him, he wasn't on the roster, but it didn't matter. He was a big contributor to the Cubs winning the series, according to Anthony Rizzo. Well, Brian, best of luck to you and, and the Cubs, and, and I hope you personally enjoy this series. I, I know it's going to mean a lot to you. I know that Game 3 and 4 at Wrigley will be a special night for baseball, and in particular, Cub fans, and uh, it's just an atmosphere uh, that can't uh, get here soon enough. I'm really anxious uh, to be a part of it. And I'm also looking forward to all of this sinking in because even after the Cubs clinch on Saturday, the National League pennant, it still has not sunk in quite yet, but I know it will soon enough. Well, Brian, thanks a bunch, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, anytime, Tom. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands. And this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud, to make it clear, make it known. 
Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. So we've heard about Chicago's curse. Uh, We know that this is being called the Apocalypse World Series. Uh, Cleveland's been under a curse, or at least reportedly under a curse. Uh, Talk to us about that. Well, the big curse, Tom, is something that was introduced by a very popular sports writer here named Terry Pluto about 22 years ago, and that is the curse of Rocky Calavito. Uh, Terry Pluto has been a longtime sports writer, first for the Akron Beacon Journal and now for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, writes a lot of books, and this was by far the most popular book that he wrote, came out during the strike season. The Indians were really good. It got a lot of national attention, and Pluto's basic theory is that Ever since the Indians traded Rocky Calavito at the height of his powers uh, to Detroit for Harvey Keene, they hadn't done anything. Calavito had actually uh, hit more homers than anybody else in the American League in 1959, and Keene was the batting champ in 1959. So it was a weird trade, but Calavito was this huge sympathetic figure. People loved him, and then he's gone. And they get him back five years later, but you get anybody back five years later, and, and their power has gone down, they're, they're older, they're closer to retirement. And so this kind of started what, at that point, Pluto described as a 33-year slump, which has now gone on to however many years you want to say, 67 years since the last, 68 years since the last World Series, or 55 since they traded Calavito. But but Cleveland's come close, but just haven't quite been able to make it. Right. In 95, they had arguably... Actually, inarguably, I'd say the best team in Major League Baseball. That was a team that won 100 games out of 144 in a strike-shortened season. They led the league in ERA. They led the league in batting average and runs and every other meaningful stat. And they just ran into a juggernaut that matched up really well with them, which was those 95 Braves of Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin and John Smoltz. Uh, And in 97, they went back when they probably shouldn't have, and they, they had some huge emotionally draining series wins over the Yankees and the Orioles to get back to the 97 World Series, and they faced the Florida Marlins, who were in their first postseason appearance, and they had a lead with two outs to go in the bottom of the ninth of Game 7, and Jose Mesa couldn't get the job done, and people still uh, resent him here for that, whether that's fair or not. And then the Marlins won in the 11th. Uh, And then in 07, they were actually up three games to one in the ALCS on Boston, and that was managed by Terry Francona. And Boston rallies for three straight wins, and and that was another great shot. So they've had really three great shots here in the last 21 years, and and they've never really gotten the job done. And now they're up against a historic juggernaut with the uh, with the nation's sympathy for it in the Cubs. Well, somebody's curse is, has got to go, whether it's the goat or the curse of Rocky Calavito. One of them has to be lifted this time, just like uh, the Babe Ruth curse was lifted off of Boston a few years ago. The, the Curse of the Bambino, popularized by uh, Dan Shaughnessy in a book of the same name. And, the, the of course, what really kind of sparked that was Bill Buckner's error <laughs> right. in the bottom of the 10th of, of Game 6 in 86, and Mookie Wilson legging it out. And after Boston had scored two in the top of the inning, the Mets come back and get three. And a lot like the Cubs uh, 13 years ago with Steve Bartman, Bartman gets all this unfair criticism. The Cubs still lost Game 7, right. just like in 86. The Red Sox still lost Game 7. That wasn't the end of the series. 
Um, so I, the thing with curses is you've always got uh, these goats, uh, scapegoats, really, and uh, and Bill Buckner was one for many, many years until Boston finally won in 04, and, and Bartman is, unfortunately, I think, still a scapegoat in a lot of people's eyes uh, today, and, and we don't really have one of those in Cleveland other than uh, maybe Jose Mesa in 97. But but you've got another perhaps lesser-known curse and, and maybe not as proven of curse, and that's the one of Chief Wahoo, right? Right. So in 2012, a uh, local attorney, Peter Patakos, very good writer, uh, runs a great website. If you're into Cleveland sports, it's called clevelandfrowns.com. Highly recommend it. And he wrote a cover story for the Alt Weekly here in Cleveland called Scene. And it was headlined, appropriately enough, The Curse of Chief Wahoo. And it basically posited that Chief Wahoo is this terrible, racially insensitive caricature who's taken an entire race of people and turned them into a mascot. And and that argument has gained a lot of traction in recent years. Um, And because they used this red face, um, basically Sambo kind of mascot, uh, that there was some intrinsic curse placed on them. And it doesn't hold every bit of water because Chief Wahoo was introduced in 1947 and the Indians won in 48, but they haven't won since the second season that he was here. Uh, and, and there is a lot of historical just angst <laughs> balled up in, in the curse of Chief Wahoo. And, and I think there is kind of a movement to, to get rid of him a little bit more. Cleveland uh, was always sort of, uh, in my impression, being an Ohioan, was always sort of resigned to disappointment. Uh, <laughs> they'd get to, uh, I, I don't know how else to put it, but but it didn't seem to be all that frustrating. It was sort of inevitable. It was a fatalistic look at, at things. Uh, do you still sense that, or is there a major turnaround, and is the city all up and about this? No, I mean, ever since Father's Day in June, and ever since LeBron and the Cavs had the historic turnaround, really, against the Warriors, you have this 73-win team, most successful regular season team of all time, and they mount the first 3-1 rally in, in NBA Finals history. The emotion here in this city in the aftermath of that was just it was cathartic and it was euphoric and whatever however many people were downtown the the estimate was 1.3 million people literally more than 10 percent of the state of ohio um (laughs) in in downtown cleveland for the parade uh i think since then there's just been this tremendous weight lifted uh and you see it now with the Cavs. lebron doesn't have anything left to prove uh and i don't think the city feels anymore like it has to prove anything. Like you're from Cleveland, you're wearing an Indians hat, you're wearing a Cavs hat, you're wearing a Browns jersey. Maybe not if you're wearing a Browns jersey, they have a lot to prove. But if you wear the name of the city out, people may still joke, uh, but it doesn't sting as much anymore. The mistake by the lake, that really doesn't mean anything anymore. You hear, you know, the catch, the shot, the fumble, the drive, red right at 88, the blown save, all this, the move, uh, the decision. Um, and, and it, it, it still hurts a little bit, but it doesn't sting as deep as it did because you hadn't won anything in half a century. Uh, yeah, so I, I think s- there's a tremendous weight off our back collectively. I see Respect Cleveland t-shirts now uh, <laughs> <laughs> everywhere. Well, that's pleasant. <laughs>
You're sort of a Cleveland sports historian to some degree. Can you remember back, uh, Matt, at all when Cleveland had two major professional championships in any given year? It seems to me that when the Browns were fantastic back in the late 50s, early 60s, the Indians weren't so much. Uh, Has there ever been a time like this? Well, in basically 46 to about 55, it was a 10-year run. It was a great run for the city. Um, And in 46, the Browns won the AAFC, the old All-American Football Conference, and they won it again in 47, 48, and 49. So in 48, we did actually have two major champions, the only catch being the AFC was kind of the minor league, essentially. It was a, it was a competing league with the NFL. So yeah. two at the absolute highest level, no. Uh, in 54, however, the Indians went to the World Series, and, and they were dominant that year. They went 111 and 43, and they were swept by the Giants. Shocking. It was still one of the great upsets in World Series history. And that year, the Browns actually beat the Lions 56 to 10, if I recall correctly, in the NFL championship game. So it's not the first time that two Cleveland teams have played in their championship game or championship series in the same calendar year. It would be the first time that they've won uh, won them both in the same year, yeah. Give us a snapshot, if you can, Matt, of the atmosphere uh, downtown. <laughs> I know you're, you're, you're working downtown Cleveland. What's it like today? Well, uh, I think Wiz Khalifa, it's about a quarter to four uh, in the <laughs> afternoon. I think Wiz Khalifa is doing a concert right now downtown, if he's on time, and he seldom is. Um, LeBron was asked on Sunday, what could make today better? You've got the banner raising and the ring ceremony in Game 1 of the World Series, and he said, I don't know, maybe an ice cream truck. And so Blue Bunny sent a literal semi-truck of ice cream that they're <laughs> handing out free downtown. Um, the, the line at the team store at noon was 20 minutes long. It snaked the entire way through people getting hats and programs and sweatshirts, and, and they, maybe they aren't even going tonight. Uh, and the Cavs shop was, was the same way. People just exuberant waiting for this game tonight. Uh, it, it's, it's electric, and it's going to be really, really weird. Uh, I'm actually going to the World Series game tonight. It's going to be really, really weird for those of us who aren't to go between Fox and TNT and see two nationally broadcast games right next to each other for three or four hours. We are the sports center of the universe. It's it's very strange, and it's very weird to kind of come to terms with. For people who are not aware, give them a, a depiction. Uh, the the two the ballpark and the arena are, are literally, you could almost spit from one to the other, correct? If you were really good, you probably <laughs> could. And I, Mark Twain's Jumping Frogs of Calaveras County might make it in a couple of hops. There's uh, there's two one-way streets that go between them and a, and a little plaza, and that's where a lot of the outside of the game action is, is going on tonight. Uh, easily uh, a short slant route uh, between the two, yeah. So with the, with the fans, now that they've got uh, the Cavs under their belt, do, do you see more of a swagger with this World Series, or is it still a little bit of fear and trepidation that things will disappear. I wouldn't say swagger, just because I don't think... I, I, I hate having ego and I hate having arrogance, and I'm sure there are some people in Cleveland who have that, but I don't think most Clevelanders, being modest Midwesterners, have a swagger. No. There is a sense, though, that 
yeah, uh, you know, if, if we lose, it's still gonna, it's still gonna stink for for a while, you know, to get here and and to get this close again. Uh, but I think people are are at peace. Uh, we we have one. It'd be great to have another one. Uh, but if if for whatever reason the Cubs finally snap their string, I think we're okay. The Cubs are talking a dynasty, a very young team. Uh, they're going to be back year after year after year. At least that's what their fans are are saying. Uh, same sense with the Indians? Uh, I think the Indians have opened their window a little bit more here for a few years. They've got a lot, most of the roster signed to longer-term deals. Uh, Corey Kluber's here through 2020. Andrew Miller's here through 2018. Uh, Santana has an option for next year. Pretty much everybody's here except for Napoli. Um, you say dynasty with the Cubs. I, I, I have to laugh a little bit because they haven't won anything yet. <laughs> you got to win one before you have a chance to win another one. And if you get to two, well, then maybe we got a chance at a dynasty. But you know, it's like the Washington Nationals have a dynasty, and they've never even won a postseason series. The Golden State Warriors want to be a dynasty. They've won one finals. So the Cubs certainly could, and they've got a lot of pieces here. And the Indians certainly could. They've got a lot of pieces here, too, especially guys who've been injured all year, like Carlos Carrasco and, and Danny Salazar and Michael Brantley. Um, but you got to win one. So we'll see who's on the first step to a dynasty here in the next uh, five to nine days. You're a huge fan and a, a knowledgeable fan, and you've also spent uh, part of your journalistic life writing about baseball. For for the average viewer out there, uh, what should they be watching for? What, what are you going to notice about this series? Give them some things that they may not normally observe. Other than Fox's constant montages of what happened in the world in 1908 and 1945 <laughs> and 1948. Every two minutes, right? Right. Um, I mean, obviously, the Cubs starting pitching is really good, and the Indians starting pitching, when it's healthy, is really good. Um, but it's not healthy. So I think the, the things to watch for, and some of it's been mentioned nationally, and some of it I don't know if it has been or not, um, the Indians do run really, really well. They did not have much of an opportunity to run against Boston or Toronto. But Toronto's starting pitchers don't hold runners, and they didn't in the LCS. And, and Chicago's runners, or pitchers, don't hold runners really well either. So we'll see if the run game comes into play. Uh, the Indians are very good at going from first to third on a single, going from second to home on a single. Um, that could swing, swing a game here or there. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see if they split in Cleveland, the first two games, whether Corey Kluber comes back on short rest to pitch game four, and if necessary, game seven, because uh, he's really the only stud pitcher the Indians have left, and he could do that, although he pitched on short rest in the ALCS and was good, but not great. And the other thing is really just a battle of the bullpens. They're two very, very good bullpens. Uh, they're structured differently. Uh, the, the Cubs have their more traditional flamethrower at the back end of Roldis Chapman, who the Cubs got from the Yankees midseason. The Indians' ace is, is Andrew Miller, also acquired from the Yankees uh, this summer. And they're managed differently. They're deployed differently. Joe Madden and, and Tito Francona have different ways of, of using their bullpens. Um, so that'll be interesting to see. If Whoever can get a lead after four or five innings should probably win that game. I'd be very surprised if there are any late-inning comebacks in any of these games. 
Well, Matt, best of luck to Cleveland, and thanks for your insights. One of these teams is going to dispel the curse, and the other one, you know, it's going to last just a little bit longer. Unless they play 3,047 innings in Game (laughs) 7. You're absolutely right. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thanks, Tom. Today, we've been talking to baseball fanatics and fans of the Chicago Cubs and the Cleveland Indians. We had Brian Corbin for the Cubs and Matt Lowell for the Indians. We learned about the curses hanging over each team and how one will dispel that curse in this year's Apocalypse World Series. This podcast is produced by WBOGB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or give it a review on iTunes. If you have questions or comments about our podcast, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.